Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. God bless you. First Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. And when Mike announced that we're having an all worship and only worship night on Wednesday, I heard a few too many. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Only worship. But I won't take it personally. I know I'm the common denominator there. Two weeks from today, beach baptism, if you haven't been baptized or like if you were baptized like as a baby and you didn't know what it meant, uh, this is a great time to be baptized. Baptism is just a declaration of the change that God has already done inside of you. And it's a public thing. So you're, you're sharing it with anybody who's wandering on the beach, but also with us as a church body, as a church family. We enjoy the privilege of sharing that together as a church. So if that's you this morning, there is a sign-up table in the back. Please sign up uh, for that so we know uh, who all is going to be baptized. Or if you need information, you come and talk to us afterwards. The Corinthians kind of a paradox. They're both at the same time this real gifted group. Remember way back in chapter one he said they're gifted in all utterance and all knowledge. They can no, shorten no gift, Paul said. But at the same time they were sort of at risk of squandering all that God could do in them. Why? How do we know? Well you fast forward to where we've been this last couple weeks. There's this discussion about whether or not it's okay to eat meat offered up to idols, which really wasn't the issue. The heart of the issue, because Paul said, hey, an idol is nothing in this world. Whether you eat or don't, you don't sin. The issue was the heart behind the situation. If my eating causes someone to stumble, or God forbid, would prevent someone from coming to Christ. Oh, a bunch of hypocrites those Christians are. And Paul says, you should be willing to forego that liberty. You may have freedom in Christ to participate in that, but not if it costs someone salvation along the way. Paul said, look, I don't do anything that might compromise the opportunity for someone to come to Christ. Here is a person who lived his life exclusively for the sake of the gospel. He used that word win like five times last week to win people to Christ, win people to Christ, win people to Christ. He said, hey, I'd become a Jew to win Jews, a Gentile to win Gentiles, weak to win the weak, whatever it takes that people might come to Christ. Now, if you don't know God and you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with God, you might think that's a little over the top. You know, to exclusively just live your life for God when you don't believe in God, I can understand where you're coming from. For a believer, though, even some believers sometimes look at that and go, to live my life exclusively, to see people come to Christ, that seems a little over top even for some believers. And Paul, sort of recognizing that, last week used some wonderful imagery from the world of athletics. Talking about how, hey, an athlete will kill themselves. I mean, they will work hard, they will discipline themselves, they'll watch what they eat and what they don't eat and all these kinds of things to compete to win a prize or a medal or a little ribbon or maybe some money at best. But he said all of that is perishable. But we as Christians, we compete in a race that pays a prize that is imperishable. Not just the crown of life which we're given to those who love him, but also we compete for that prize which is other people. That was the context last time. He was talking about, hey, we're bringing people to heaven with us, which is the only thing you can bring with you to heaven, is people. 
And that's the only thing worth really working hard for in this lifetime. That was the point. Paul was saying, not to say, hey, don't compete in athletics. He's saying in the same way that they compete hard for something that's perishable, how much more so as Christians should we run the race of life for imperishable ramifications? And so he said, as a result, I, I discipline myself. He said, I live a moderate life. Not that I don't have fun but I, I live in moderation as to prevent myself from being, he wrapped up last time by saying, by being disqualified. You don't want to be disqualified from service to God, from God's highest for his life, from God's perfect will in terms of the call that he had placed on Paul's life. And we said last time that there's a sense in which um, one can be both technically disqualified and also practically disqualified. You can be technically disqualified, a runner could, by having a false start one too many times. Or a boxer, he used the illustration of a boxer last time, could be technically disqualified if afterwards he won a fight but they found some sort of performance enhancing drugs in his system. He would be technically disqualified. Just like in the ministry, a person can be in an ongoing, unrepented sin situation, they can be technically disqualified from serving the Lord. Or you can die. And then you're technically, even if you're in heaven, you are technically disqualified from serving the Lord. You're no longer able to serve God anymore. There's a technical way in which we can become disqualified from serving God. But there's also a practical way in which we can become disqualified, in a sense. It's like the uh, runner who asked his coach one time, hey, can I smoke and run? And his coach said, you can smoke and run, but you can't smoke and win. And that's the practical thing. I think that most of us probably fall into that category more often than not. That we're not always experiencing all that God has for us in this lifetime for practical reasons, for worldly reasons, for, in, uh, for, for perishable uh, results in life, perishable pursuits in life that are not the things that God has for us in our life. And so now, as we kind of, you know, flip the page and go to chapter 10 here, Paul uses the nation of Israel as an example of a group of folks that essentially disqualified themselves from God's highest for their lives. And it's been said before, you've heard it said, that those that refuse to learn from history are forced to repeat its mistakes. And then Malcolm Muggridge said, new news is just old news happening to new people. And so here's Paul, and he's talking to people 2,000 years ago about people 2,000 years before them and saying, hey, don't make the kinds of mistakes that they made. And I'm sure they were sitting there reading this going, oh, come on, we would never do these things. In the same way that we look back at the Corinthians and go, we would never take each other to court. We wouldn't argue over our favorite teachers. We certainly would not have a debate about meat offered up to idols, missing the underpinning of those discussions, the heart of those discussions, and the sort of categorical corresponding sin that might be something that has a hold of my life or yours from time to time. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, as we'll see that Paul here is going to give us some examples, both in the first few verses here, of just how accountable these Israelites were in light of how privileged a people they were. I mean, how much of the miraculous 
they were exposed to. So first he establishes their accountability. Then he kind of dives into their sin. And I think what we'll find there is in describing some of their sin, though specifically it might not be applicable to you and I, generally we will be able to look at it and go, yeah, you know, that is me sometimes too. And this is an example, a warning, of, if you will, for us to avoid these kinds of things. Now the backdrop real quick. In the book of Exodus, when the Pharaoh finally had let the people go, God took them the long way to the promised land. If you go directly from Egypt to Jericho, I don't know, it's like a one or two week journey. I didn't calculate what it should have been by going the long route, actually it would be like this. I didn't calculate what that long route would be, but he avoided taking that direct route because the Philistine territory was right in the way. And God did not want the Israelites to see warfare uh, right after they uh, got out of their bondage of slavery there in Egypt because they might have wanted to go back rather than face the warfare. So he took them south towards the Red Sea and we'll talk about that this morning. But along the way, as they're sort of wandering in the wilderness and you know a little bit about the Israelites and their wilderness wanderings, they begin to kind of lose heart. They begin to lose faith. Some of these sins that, you know, we may be prone to as well that we're going to see in them sort of flows from that faint of heart, the losing heart, the losing of faith that they had from wandering in the wilderness, despite the obvious direction, protection, and provision of God. In miraculous ways, on a daily basis, they still lost faith along the way. And so Paul uses this as an example for um, our benefit this morning that we can draw upon this. So verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. So after the Exodus, you know that there was a pillar of cloud that the Israelites followed by day, and it was a pillar of fire by night. I mean, that is a pretty easy way to follow the Lord. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit, thank God, but we have to pray and wait upon the Lord for him to show us where to go and what to do. All they had to do, oh, the cloud's moving, okay, pack up your stuff and follow the cloud. And that's what they did. I mean, what a wonderful, miraculous sense of direction that God was giving them. Uh, but also, his protection as well. Look at the end of verse 1. They all also passed through the sea. And, and you know the story, right? So they went the long way, or the long way, and went down towards the Red Sea, which kind of blocked them in. And, you know, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened even after he let the people go. And he wanted to go get them, and they knew they were coming after them, and they're blocked in by the Red Sea. And here come the Egyptians. And, of course, what did God do? He parted that Red Sea, and they crossed over on dry land. And as soon as they were finished crossing over, then that Red Sea collapsed upon the Egyptians and crushed them. Amazing how God did that. Well, every once in a while, I hear some kind of a scholar or something like that. You know, or a historian or the History Channel talk about how, well, we now know that the... Uh, Red Sea was really the Sea of Reeds, and in reality, uh, seasonally, the water subsides a little bit, and so in actuality, at that time of the year, it was probably only about 18 inches of water that the Israelites crossed through. 
That's so stupid. Because if that's the case, then we have an even greater miracle at hand because how did the Egyptians die in 18 inches of water? How did they all drown in 18 inches of water? Every time you try and take God's word and spin it and prove it wrong, you always box yourself uh, into a corner. So there's a bunch of people that saw miraculous, right? They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw this cloud. They also were led by a great leader, verse 2. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And the word baptized just means to be identified with. Moses here, sort of a picture of Christ in that sense. He's our leader. Egypt, of course, a picture of the world and bondage and slavery to sin. And Moses kind of leading them out of that and crossing the Red Sea. And that's just a picture sort of of what Christ does in our lives. And if you're going to wander in the uh, wilderness for 40 years, you want a guy like Moses to be leading you along the way. It says also, verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food, which was the manna that fell from heaven. More on that in a little bit. And verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So you put all of this together, and what do you have? You have this cloud providing them direction. You have the Red Sea, which was God's means of deliverance and protection of them as he took out the Egyptians in the process. Then you also have food falling from the sky, water coming out of a rock. I mean, amazing, tremendous privileges that the Israelites saw on a regular basis. Now, I would like to think, I would hope for me and for you, that these things we would be exposed to if we were in their shoes and that we would not lose faith in the process. That these kinds of everyday miracles would be enough where I would never complain or murmur against God. But verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased. So don't tell me all you need is a sign. I disagree. For an unbeliever who thinks, well, if God would just show me a sign, then I believe. I don't agree. And for you as a believer, if you think, well, all I need in order to make myself more available to God, to be more obedient to God, would be a sign. I don't agree. Because here are the Israelites, and they were seeing signs every day. Food falling from the sky. Give a scientist enough time, he'll come up with some kind of theory as to how that could happen. And listen, for those that take notes, write this down. For the Israelites, the supernatural became the ordinary. Supernatural things became ordinary. So they weren't impressed anymore. So it wouldn't matter how many signs God performed in our life. We would still want more. What about the sunset every single day? How about a wave crashing upon the shore? You ever look up at the stars at night? How about a baby being born? Miracles that happen every day that we're immune to sometimes, even as Christians, because they're ordinary. They happen all the time. God has given great evidence to his faithfulness and his love for humanity. It's just whether people choose to believe it or not. And Israel, well, they believed, but they just seemed to waver, to waffle a lot. And so it says there in verse 5, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. In other words, most of them never made it to the promised land. They died there in that wilderness. And actually, the word most there in verse 5 is, well, the biggest understatement, perhaps, in the Bible. 
because of the estimated two to three million Israelites that were a part of the exodus from Egypt, two adult males made it into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua. Even with all of the miracles and experiences that they had been exposed to, seeing God work on a regular basis, most of them, as it says there, never really entered into the promised land. In other words, it's kind of like saying, never really entering into God's highest for them. It's kind of like a Christian who is saved, but doesn't enter into God's highest for their lives. Because remember, the promised land is not a picture of heaven, right? Because there's still war, there's still death, things like that in, in the promised land. So it's not a picture of heaven. Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. And you know Moses is in heaven, right? I hope you know Moses is in heaven. Now, inevitably, there were probably some Israelites that weren't saved. But what this is talking about is they didn't enter into the fullness of what God had for them. They didn't enter into the victorious life, the victorious life that is available to us as Christians. You know, by being obedient and by trusting God. But most of them, um, as the word said last time, became disqualified in their service unto God because they lost faith along the way, which was shown from some of the sins here that he's going to describe to us in these next few verses. Sins that you and I are prone to as well, and hence the examples. He says, verse 6, now these things became our examples. Not good examples, unfortunately, but examples of what not to do to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, the word lust there doesn't mean lust like in a sexual sense. It just means a really strong desire. And their desire was for something that wasn't bad in and of itself. It just wasn't what God had for them. So back to the manna discussion, right? Manna's falling from the sky. Amazing, right? And manna, the Bible says, is this like miracle, it's like wonder bread. Miracle food that was really good for you too. It had all the nutrition that you would need. I mean, could you imagine, you know, like glazed donuts falling from the sky? Only they don't make you fat and they have all the vitamins and supplements that you need to survive on a daily basis. That's what they had in manna, okay? But now, in fairness to the Israelites, 40 years of glazed donuts... And I've seen people do a lot of things with glazed donuts. I've seen a glazed donut cheeseburger not too long ago that our worship leader ate. Oh, whoops, I just told you that. There's a lot of things you could do. And they would do a lot of things with manna because they would grind it up and they would make like manna cakes and manna burgers and banana bread and manna cotti. Stop right there. Stop. No more. <laughs> but they did a lot of things with it but they're like come on for the love of God Moses can we have a little bit of meat and God was not happy with that why not because there was anything wrong with meat but because they weren't happy with what he had provided for them like spoiled children and so what did he do he sent quail 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 and they ate quail until they were sick as can be and it's a warning to you and to me 
about complaining against God's provision for our lives. And you know, if you are in that category this morning, if you're wanting, I know that sounds harsh, but God told me first. And because I'm wanting of things that God hasn't provided, then I'm in essence, by default saying, God, you're not being right to me. You're not being fair to me. And that's what they were doing. That's what the Israelites were doing. It wasn't making God happy. So they were lusting after evil things. Not that the meat was evil, but just it wasn't what God had had for them. Number two, they were guilty of idolatry also, verse seven. It says, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Maybe you remember this scene. This is the famous golden calf incident where Moses goes up. He's gone 40 days, that's it. Goes up to Mount Sinai. The people come to Aaron, who's Moses' brother. And they go, well, we don't know what's happened to this guy, Moses, so we need a God. Aaron's like, well, I got a good idea. Let's put all of our gold together. And he melted it down to a golden calf, and they danced around it and worshipped it and bowed down to it, which, of course, did not make God happy at all whatsoever. Now, from the Corinthians' perspective, when Paul's writing about this, or from our perspective, we look at this as foolishness. Never bowed down to a calf. In fact, in fact, all idolatry to us at first glance seems foolish, right? Like the first time, if you've been walking with the Lord for a little while, you heard about idolatry, you're probably like, what do you, who would ever bow down to an idol? Who would make a statue and then bow down to it? First of all, it happens in the world today. There are people that bow down to statues. I'm just saying, it happens. So as foolish as that may sound, it does happen that people will make a statue for themselves and then bow down to it. But idolatry in the Bible is just symbolic of anything that replaces God in terms of preeminence or importance in our lives. So anything, any created thing can become idolatry. Someone once said that. They said um, uh, that idolatry is taking any good thing, any good thing, and making it a God thing. So you, it could be an activity, it can be a pursuit of yours, it can be a financial thing, whatever the case may be, in and of itself, technically it may be neutral, not sin. But if you place it in terms of importance above God, then it can become idolatry. So are we then sometimes guilty of idolatry? And the answer is yes. Right? What do you, when you wake up in the morning, if your thought process, if your passion is burning for something other than God, you might be guilty of idolatry. You know, if what you're thinking about right now is I can't wait to go home so that I can whatever fill in the gap, then you could be guilty of idolatry. I know, I, I'm with you too. I made those same kinds of mistakes. So don't dismiss what he's talking about in terms of the Israelites bowing down to a calf. It's no different than uh, being a, a fan of a sports team and just making that my thing in life. Where I just, my, that's where my blood boils when my team wins. And that's what I get all excited about in life. It's no different than what the Israelites were doing. So they're guilty of lust. They're guilty of idolatry. Number three, they're guilty of sexual immorality also. Verse eight, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. You may know this story also. Balak, who was the king of Moab, he tried to hire this kind of odd 
seer slash prophet guy, Balaam. Maybe you know the story. And he tried to hire him to basically pronounce curses against the Israelites. And Balaam tried, but tried as he might, every time the words that would come out of his mouth would just be one blessing after the other because God wouldn't let him. Well, anyway, Balaam found a loophole. You look forward to Revelation 2 and you can look up the reference later. But Balaam found a trick to help uh, the king of Moab, Balak, with his problem, that is the Israelites and their onslaught, their huge army that they had, and the fact that they had God with them. And he basically taught Balak this. He said, look, you're never going to come against God's people from without. You're not going to be able to bring a headlong rush against God's people. You're never going to be able to do that. Their God is too strong, and he is totally for them. So you're never going to defeat them that way. The way to defeat the Israelites is to infiltrate from within. And that's exactly what Balak did. He sent the women of Moab, he had them dress seductively to entice the men of Israel into worshiping their false gods through sexual activity. And it says here, in one day, 23,000 fell because God sent a plague as a result of that rebellion. So there's the lusting after things that God didn't want for them. There was the idolatry. There was the sexual immorality. Now here at verse 9 also, they're guilty of tempting God, verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. How did they tempt God? They tempted God when they went to Moses, and they did this several times. But they went to Moses and they said, why have you brought us out here in the desert so we could die? You're not even going to give us food and water out here. And you give us this bread which we just can't stand. And so what happened? The serpents, the fiery serpents started biting at them and they were dying. And so what does God instruct Moses to do? You remember the story, right? God instructs Moses to grab a pole put it in the ground, attach a bronze serpent to the top of that pole. What would that be a picture of? Jesus Christ, right? We sang it earlier. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And that's what happened. They were instructed to look upon that bronze serpent, upon that pole, and anyone who looked at that serpent would be spared. Their life would be spared. And that's exactly what happened. But in essence, what they were guilty of was tempting God again by complaining against his provision. And by the way, this is again something that we know we can relate with. We see it all the time. Where a person has themselves in a little bit of a mess, so to speak, in life. And they cry out to God, but they want God to do what they want him to do when they want him to do it and if he doesn't well then i'm done i'm done worshiping you god because you won't do what i want you to do i was at a men's retreat one time and a young man pulled me aside and he said i'm having a hard time worshiping right as we were beginning and usually when someone says i'm having a hard time worshiping it's because they have sin in their life and they just want to pray real quick and then get back to worshiping but this man said i'm having a hard time worshiping because I've been praying a lot, Pastor, and God's not answering my prayers. He's not taking care of my financial situation. 
He hasn't found me a job yet. He hasn't taken care of my marriage with my wife. And he hasn't uh, reconciled my family yet. And I'm all, let me get this straight. So are you telling me you don't want to worship God because he won't do what you tell him to do? Why don't you flip it around? And what if he's not doing what you want him to do because you're not doing what he wants you to do? Why don't you go back there and worship him for who he, uh, for who he is regardless of what he gives you and watch him conform your heart so that whatever you get, you'll be blessed by. See, because that's the thing that we do. We do it too, right, Christians? We kind of complain a little bit. We've got a little bit of a, a spirit of complaining in us. That's the next example here on the list. Verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. <laughs> now, this could be just speaking about the Israelites in general because they were notoriously known for complaining. But I don't know that we're a whole lot better than the Israelites. I mean, we can complain even when there's nothing to complain about. I mean, have you ever said something before like, uh, it's got no room in this closet. Well, think about what you're saying. You have too much clothes, so you can't fit it into your closet. I've said this before. There's no room. I've got some Hagen dazs and I can't fit it in the freezer. Now think about what I'm saying. There's too much extra food here, Lord, and I can't fit some Hagen dazs in here to keep it cool. So we're good at this kind of thing on our own. We don't have to be taught it. It just comes natural to us, that kind of thing. But I do think that this is referring, verse 10 here, to a specific instance in which there was a rebellion took place within the congregation of the Israelites. Korah, you may remember the name, and a couple others led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They came to Moses and Aaron and basically accused them of nepotism, saying, look, you two... You put yourself in a position exalting yourselves above the congregation. And you put all your family and friends in those spots. Which, by the way, wasn't true. Because God was the one who called Moses and Aaron. If you remember, Moses didn't even want the job. He fought it tooth and nail. It was God who called him to do that. But nevertheless, Korah and these men were successful in igniting a huge rebellion amongst individuals and some of the elders within that congregation there of the Israelites. So what did God do? Remember? He opened up the ground. He swallowed them up. So then, get this, the very next day, the ones that weren't swallowed up, they went to Moses and they said, you have killed the people of the Lord. As if Moses had done it and not God. As if Moses caused the ground to open up and swallow the complainers and not God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I see the ground open up and swallow up a bunch of complainers, I don't go back to Moses the next day and start complaining. I don't care who did it. But somehow they thought themselves righteous here to go and complain to Moses along these lines. What did God do? Run another plague send the lesson and Moses you know Moses was an amazing man you think about Moses because these people they complain you look at every page Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy I mean, they're, they're always complaining and Moses he's getting the brunt of all these complaints even though ultimately they're directed at God 
Moses is the one who has to listen to this. So this plague breaks out and people are getting sick. And you and I, you know, we're not Moses. We might sit there, let's let this thing play out a couple days and see if these people are really repentant after all. But Moses really quickly grabs Aaron. He says, go grab the censer on the altar there, light some incense and run around the congregation to make atonement for their sins and God stopped the plague. But not before 14,700 people died. Now, I think what's very interesting about this particular example is that complaining brought a plague from God. Why? Think about it. It's the ultimate justice. Because complaining is a plague. Complaining is a plague that spreads. Listen, this morning we've been talking about the Israelites who were a people of privilege, okay? So again, I want to talk to us this morning, not just talking about, you know, Christianity or what it means to be a Christian. I want to talk about our church for a minute, Calvary Chapel Capitola. So if you count this as your church, please listen. Because I dare say we're a privileged people. It's not like we could sit around here and go, well, you know, if God would move every once in a while in this church, I mean, if someone would get saved or baptized, or if God would do something, or if people would grow spiritually, or if God would bring more servants, or if God would add to the church, we can't make any of those claims against God over what he's done the last couple of years here in this church. We've seen God's hand on this church. We've seen God move, his spirit move in this place. We're a privileged people. And yet, just like the Israelites, privilege sometimes is probably why he doesn't give us more privilege. He kind of gives it to us a little bit at a time because privilege oftentimes leads to complacency. And complacency leads to complaining. And complaining is a plague. And once it starts to filter around the church body, I've seen it from personal experience, it's a death trap for a congregation. And so, he says, verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So instead of scratching your head and going, I can't believe these people, as I often do when I read the Bible, you know, when you see characters in the Bible fail and you go, what were they thinking? What a fool. You know, instead of doing that, realize that this is written for our admonition so that we wouldn't follow in their bad footsteps. Because I have a feeling I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to greet one of the saints of old and they're going to be like, you know, Joe, you did worse than me and you had my example to learn from. I mean, he'll say it in love, I'm sure, because, you know, we're in heaven at that point, so we'll be chuckling about it. But I just have a feeling, you know, that we should have learned from these things. Paul says these are examples written for your admonition. And there's a very real danger, I think, I believe here in this text, of overconfidence. Of sitting here this morning and thinking to yourself, well, you know, that's not really something I'm tempted by, sexual sin or idolatry or complaining. Those aren't really my problems. As Bob Lewis said earlier, well, by the way, there are more lists in the Bible and you're on that list anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. You're on some kind of a list. 
And the fact of the matter is, God is making it very clear here. Look, be careful, be careful that you don't find yourself in a spot where you're overconfident, thinking you aren't susceptible to these same kinds of things. And then he goes into verse 12, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, yours too probably, but this one here in context of the discussion just really helps it hit home. He says, verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Who is the person most at danger this morning? The person who thinks they stand. So like if you're one of those people like, boy, I don't know if I can hold up. I got a lot of problems. I'm pretty weak. I need God in my life. Well, then you're doing all right. You're not overconfident. But if you think you stand, there's only about one or two ways or three ways, I don't know, that you can really stand upright. There's about an infinite number of ways in which you can lean one direction or the other and fall. And it's true in life as well. If you think you stand, then you're more at risk than if you realize, boy, I'm dependent on God. I need God. If I don't have God, I'm likely to be in trouble. And it's sort of sobering to consider that the great heroes of the Bible, inevitably in the areas of which they were strongest is where they experienced weakness. You ever thought about that before? You think about Solomon. Solomon was known for wisdom, right? And yet, Solomon, at the end of his life, played the fool. Tried to find meaning and fulfillment in life apart from God. With all sorts of crazy experimentation. How about Noah? Noah, known for his rightness and his purity. Even when the whole world was doing nothing but plotting evil. The Bible says that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And yet what happened at the end of his life? He got drunk and evidently involved in some sort of sexual immorality. Abraham, known for his faith. And yet he stopped trusting in the promises of God, had relations with Hagar to try to fulfill God's promise instead of waiting for God and the problems in the Middle East to this day still stem from the father of the faith's lack of faith how about Peter known for courage he was bold he was the one who lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant when they came to arrest Jesus and he told Jesus, hey, we're ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, even if everyone else would be made to stumble tonight, I won't, Lord. And then how did he fail? Sitting by a fire, a little girl asked him if he knew who Jesus was. And he swore and he cursed and he said, I do not know him. And then even appropriate for our text this morning Moses you know why Moses didn't enter the promised land had to do with that rock right God told Moses first time he wanted him to strike the rock for the water to come out but the second time he was supposed to speak to the rock because it was a picture of Christ who was to be smitten once and then to be spoken to there on after 
And God was upset with Moses that he did that. Because Moses, although Moses was called the meekest man in the world, he was gentle, lost his cool, lost his temper in the wilderness, fell in his area of greatest strength as well. And so if these hall of faith type characters, and we can go on and on and on, if these hall of faith type characters can fail in the area of their greatest strength, then we can also, because verse 13, this is our last verse, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. So in other words, we all struggle with the same things. But that does not mean that we will inevitably fail because, look what it says, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So two things there. One, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Able to what? Able to resist the temptation. By the way, that means you're not allowed to say, well, you don't understand my situation. My temptation's not like your temptation. It's way harder for me to resist. And if you were me, Joe, you would give in to that temptation. Nor can I say that to you. Because God says he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to resist. Which, by the way, that might be one of the reasons why we don't have more money or more fame or more of whatever we think we want. Because if we had it, then we might not be able to resist the temptation that would go along with it. The second thing he said there is that God will also provide a way of escape. This is probably the part that is most comforting for me in my life is that God provides a way of escape. Because you take your area or two or three or whatever of weakness in terms of obedience unto the Lord and you who have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you that are born again, you that are Christians, you tell me that he's not faithful every single time to warn you before the temptation comes. Every single time. It's amazing. And even though sometimes I didn't heed God's warning, a lot of times, <laughs> and I blew it, I was comforted by looking back and going, he warned me. He told me ahead of time that this was going to happen. Even if it's like mid-sentence, someone said something to you and you want to argue back and God says, don't say it, right? You know, you experienced this before. Holy Spirit saying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, but you say it. But then you look back and you go, yeah, but he warned me. What does that tell me? He loves me. He, I'm his child. He lives inside of me. He cares enough about me. He knows the future and I'm his child. What's more precious than that? What's more valuable than a confirmation that God knew you were going to sin before you sinned? I don't want to sin. But I love the fact that he does that for me. Here's how it works. Something like this. You get a young man, he gets home on a Friday night, he's like, I'm going to go downtown, I'm going to have a good time, I'm going to hang out with the fellas. But God's like, no, don't do it, you don't want to go do that, I know you've had a long week. And then he gets a phone call from his buddy at church who wants to go to a movies. That's a way of escape. Now he can choose the way of escape or he can choose to go sin with his buddies, but God is faithful. You start keeping a log if you want to prove me wrong. 
Start keeping a log of your sin and you right now, whether God told you ahead of time, gave you a little check about what you're about to do. I guarantee you he does. He has every time. He's faithful in my life to say, Joe, don't do it. It's not worth it. You're going to regret it afterwards. I love you. That's why I'm telling you not to do it. All of this to say this morning, look, hey, we're all guilty of something. We all don't live perfect lives. You might be a complainer. You might be someone who wants something that God's not providing in your life. You may be someone like me that struggles with contentment, even though that shouldn't be a struggle that we have. But the fact of the matter is, what's wonderful about being a child of God is, I don't care how distant you've been from God, right now, you can enter back in. What is so great about the Lord is, what he did in dying upon that cross, that wasn't just to save you, but he was allowing you to experience again this morning that spirit-filled abundant life it's not like you know other religions and all this kind of stuff where you got to do all these things to seek peace and read this book and you got to go through these steps you can just say a simple prayer and you can give it back over to him this morning you say lord i'm sorry and i know you're right and i know i need you in my life and i know your ways are better than my ways and help me lord change me change me to make me want what you want for my life and he'll honor that this morning father we thank you for the warnings even that you give us in scripture and from your holy spirit god that's a, a comforting touching thing god that you love us enough that you communicate with us even when we're about to do wrong lord i know i've even prayed before before I sinned before to ask for forgiveness in advance because I knew it and you knew it Lord actually even though it's a little bit revealing to know that you know every single thing about us it's also the ultimate comfort as well because God you, you brought us here today you brought us here to talk to us about this Lord, you know the things that we're struggling with, each person in our hearts. The things that we're having a hard time giving up, Lord. The things that you've been working with us on. And there's conflict in our hearts. Because we want things our way. And you're trying to let us get us to let go, just like you were with the Corinthians, just like you were with the Israelites. And there's a struggle inside to give it up and to let you rule and reign and be God sometimes, even for believers. And Lord, we just pray this morning that uh, will you just, as you always are, Lord, you just be forgiving of us, accepting of us, patient with us. Change our hearts, God, and help us to desire good things, Lord, and to be content with exactly what you've provided for us. In Jesus' name.